My name is Ann Kennigsmark, and I'm an English teacher, a writer, and a former journalist. And now I am your host for Cocktail Party Takeaways, a podcast for anyone with regrets, but not deep ones, about the books they slept through in high school. Welcome to season two of my podcast, which, if you are a faithful listener, you know has become a fun and lively romp through classic literature and personal stories. I've told you guys a lot about myself, so stick around. This might be the season where I trot out war stories from my days as a journalist. As a reminder, the idea for this podcast sprang from my realization that high school students probably retain precious little of what they learn in my classes. That's why I came up with the cocktail party takeaways, those few things per book that I'd like you to keep with you for the rest of your life so that one day when you're in a crowded room with a glass of wine in your hand, you can be the one who knows that Gatsby throws elaborate parties but actually does not drink. You can cite Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House as one of the great gifts to the queer literary canon. And you'll be the only one who knows that the scene in Life of Pi where the main character meets another castaway is likely an homage to Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. This episode has it all. Sex? Check. Jesus? Check. Cockroaches? Got them too. Or at least one very, very large cockroach. Season two of Cocktail Party Takeaways begins with Franz Kafka's 1915 masterpiece of Ick, The Metamorphosis. In season one of Cocktail Party Takeaways, I lingered frequently over the first sentences of books. From Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, there's The Grandmother Didn't Want to Go to Florida. From Where Are You Going, Where Have You Been by Joyce Carol Oates, it was Her Name Was Connie. And I spent more than a few minutes unpacking that incredibly complex and spooky opening paragraph from The Haunting of Hill House. How's this for an opening sentence? When Gregor Samsa woke up one morning from unsettling dreams, he found himself changed in his bed into a monstrous vermin. I have two takeaways already. The first is that it is commonly held that this first line is actually the climax of the story. By commonly held, I mean that English teachers like to say this, not that people on the subway are talking about it or anything. The climax is, as you know, the point of greatest tension, the will she or won't she, the moment the hero faces the dragon or his inner demons or Darth Vader who is actually his dad. Everything that follows is resolution or falling action or denouement. You remember that primitive roller coaster your English teacher would draw on the board with the climax at the highest point, not way down at the beginning. In a Shakespeare tragedy, the climax always happens in act three which is right in the middle of his five acts. In most modern stories, the climax occurs toward the end. Think of the famous hotel scene in The Great Gatsby, or that moment towards the end of George Orwell's 1984 when Winston screams, do it to Julia. I won't say more about that because 1984 is coming soon. So how can a story open with the climax? You will soon see that as unlikely as it seems, that is exactly what this first sentence is. Gregor Samsa turning into a bug with no explanation or reason is the moment of greatest tension in this slender novella. 
Everything that happens after is in reaction to this disastrous, seemingly senseless change in fortunes. What follows is also sort of inevitable, but you don't realize that until you've read the whole thing. As it says in the explanatory notes at the back of my copy of the book, there are no empirical events leading up to it, no attempts on Kafka's part to explain precisely why it has occurred, in what sense the change is deserved, or otherwise intelligible. The thrust of the work is to describe the response of Gregor and his family to the abrupt metamorphosis violently inserted into conventional reality. The second takeaway is that Kafka wrote in German, so this is a translation, and it's interesting to see all the ways this sentence gets translated. In one version, it's anxious dreams. In another, it's uneasy dreams. In still another, it's a single troublesome dream. In some versions, he is a hideous insect instead of a monstrous one. In another, he is a horrible vermin, a gigantic insect. And in one translator's attempt to please all the people all the time, he is a monstrous, verminous bug. I like monstrous vermin, because monstrous has many connotations, from just enormous to horrific and scary. And vermin hints at something pestilent and unwanted. Put the two together, and you have a disgusting creature indeed. A little side note about how I feel about cockroaches. I have lived most of my life in some of the cockroach capitals of the world. Atlanta is pretty bad, but living many years in New York City and in New Orleans means I have encountered more than my fair share of the outsized scuttlers and flyers no, calling them water bugs does not make them less vile. And exposure therapy is clearly a myth because Lord knows I have been exposed and still nothing, nothing freaks me out more than the sight of that large brown stain of a thing on a counter, on a wall, or on the sidewalk. I have been known to stand on a student desk to put distance between myself and an unwelcome classroom visitor. When I was about 19, I was home from college one vacation and staying at my mother's pre-war New York apartment. You know, the kind where you always have a window cracked somewhere because the radiators will cook you otherwise. I was stepping out of the shower and grabbing a towel when I felt a little flutter on my back. At first I thought it was just water, but then I saw it. A giant cockroach flew off my back and lazily around the bathroom before settling on a nice cozy spot above my bed. I screamed bloody, psycho murder and ran into my mother's room. I refused to return and cobbled together an outfit for the day from things in her closet. That night, I returned with my boyfriend, who was a true romantic and a movie buff. We'd watched Annie Hall together more than a few times, and so he looked at me all moony and said, Do you have a tennis racket? This was a nod to the scene where Diane Keaton makes Woody Allen come over and kill a large spider lurking in her bathtub. So I got one of my stepfather's rackets and handed it to him. He entered the room, and I slammed the door behind him and waited in the hall. I heard some shuffling, but no violent swings of the racket. A few minutes later, he came back out. I don't see it, he said. For some reason, perhaps deeper than that moment, I was consumed with disappointment and frustration. I can't go back in there ever until you find it and kill it, I said. Mild protests emitted from the boyfriend, who clearly didn't know how serious I was. And then, for reasons that are lost to me now, this somehow devolved into me screaming at him, Just kill it! I hate you! I know. You are now wondering who the monstrous vermin in this story is, the cockroach or me. 
Okay, so as you know, sometimes I give you information on the author's background and sometimes I do not. But in the case of Franz Kafka and his most famous novella, some background is in order. Franz Kafka was born in 1883 in Prague, then the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, today the capital of the Czech Republic. It has been called the City of Three Peoples. In 1900, its population was made up of 415,000 Czechs, 25,000 Jews, and 10,000 non-Jewish Germans. Kafka was both Jewish and German, and as such, a double minority, if you will. Jews got along well enough with the non-Jewish Germans and Czechs, but they had their own schools, newspapers, organizations, even cafes. The German-Jewish minority was seen as central to the arts scene in the city, and Kafka was an active member of the artsy-fartsy literati. Still, linguistic differences created a barrier, and the rise of anti-Semitism in Prague hinged in part on this language divide. Kafka seems to have been profoundly affected by a sense of isolation. More than one scholar has noted that Kafka believed that language and communication are essential to our humanity. This is evident pretty quickly as the story of Gregor in The Metamorphosis unfolds. Additionally, Kafka was tortured by his almost carnal need to write. He felt hemmed in by the conventions of society, particularly the demands of his overbearing authoritarian father. Kafka's day job was boring office work, and it seems clear that between the drudgery of the job and the tyranny of his father, Kafka's life was pretty, well, Kafka-esque. Kafka was never more than a minor writer in his lifetime which is hard to fathom considering he has become so famous that his name is literally an adjective. After you listen to this podcast, you will sound so much smarter the next time you say your trip to the DMV or through airport security was Kafka-esque. Remember how we examined Jan Martel's Life of Pi through four lenses? We are going to do that again with The Metamorphosis. This book is considered so important that it has been adopted by many schools of thought, and I am going to introduce four of them existentialism, Freudianism, surrealism, and expressionism. I'll give you a brief lesson on these before I dive in so that you can be looking for ways the novella fits into each of these four isms. Existentialism has its roots in Germany and France in the 1800s, but the philosophy became mainstream after World War II with the writings of Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. A key belief of existentialism is that people are created by the experiences they undergo. Life is about action, about the choices you make. You were not created by someone for something. You must do something to be anything. This sounds liberating in a way, but in fact, existentialists saw this as a problem. So much freedom can lead to disorientation. If there is no God and no external reality, then what is there? Perhaps life lacks meaning altogether. This is a lonely feeling, kind of an is this all there is mentality. Then there's that other pesky problem. We are all going to die. So life sucks and then you die. Great. Yeah, I think the fire department restricts the number of existentialists that can be at a social gathering to one. They are real downers. My dad used to call himself a bit of an existentialist. But we'll talk about him another day. Freudianism is based on the work of Austrian psychologist Sigmund Freud, whom we spoke of way back in Season 1, Episode 1, with regards to the Oedipus Complex, the theory that every little boy's first sexual impulse is directed towards his mother, which makes him competitive and perhaps resentful of his father. Freud believed that early experiences, such as one's relationship to one's parents, impact how we develop in ways that we are barely conscious of. Freud said that most of what makes us us 
lies in the realm of the subconscious. Dreams are a way to access the subconscious. So is psychotherapy. Further, he proposed that our subconscious was ruled by the id, the ego, and the superego. We have discussed this on the podcast as well. But to recap, the id is your savage, primal, bestial self. Me want food. Me want sex. Me have no rules. The superego is your best self, the morally superior side of you. And your ego sits between these two. It's your conscious, walking around self, trying to balance out the hungry devil on one shoulder and the goody-goody angel on the other. In literary terms, if you are reading a story through a so-called Freudian lens, then you are concerned with the author's life and how it is reflected in his writing. Oh, and if you're calling something Freudian, then it's wall-to-wall implied sex and the repression of said sexual impulses, the superego getting in the way of the id. Surrealism was an art and literary movement from France in the early 1900s. It stressed the power of the imagination and dreams. Any surrealist work will feature absurd situations and people reacting strangely to them, just like in a dream. It will feature things that feel impossible. Think Salvador Dali's melting clocks in the desert, a ship sailing through the clouds. Surrealism uses these dreamy, crazy scenarios in an effort to subvert societal norms, to liberate the mind and the imagination even from the laws of nature. The goal was to access the unconscious, so in this way, surrealism and Freudianism go hand in hand. André Breton, who wrote a surrealist manifesto in 1924, called the unconscious the superior reality. Closely connected to the previous three isms, expressionism is an early 19th century art movement that asserts that your thoughts and feelings are more important than so-called objective reality. Expressionist artists such as Van Gogh and Edward Munch, you know, the scream, as well as writers, attempt to portray this inner reality through symbolism, exaggeration, distortion, and dreamlike imagery. It was a popular movement in Germany in Kafka's time. All of this makes it a fitting lens for this nightmarish and highly symbolic story. So back to the novella. It's pretty easy to look at that first line as fitting into all four of the above isms. Turning into a cockroach is an existential crisis of the highest order. It could also be Freudian in that Gregor has succumbed, perhaps, to his id. It is, needless to say, pretty surreal and irrational to wake up as a giant bug. And if you look at it through an expressionist lens, it could be that Gregor has been feeling like a cockroach all along. For the rest of the first paragraph, and indeed the rest of this little novella, Kafka lays out Gregor's transformation in vivid detail. The writing can be a little tedious, honestly, like someone recording the movements of a camera as it films a scene. My students are put off by this turn-by-turn direction style of writing. I just tell them, look, you can handle anything for 59 pages. You, on the other hand, dear listeners, can spare yourselves. You can listen to this podcast and forget about actually reading this book. Did I say that? I didn't mean to say that. But you're welcome. There are elaborate descriptions of his body, his back as hard as armor plate, his vaulted brown belly sectioned by arch-shaped ribs, his many legs pitifully thin, waving helplessly, an itchy spot studded by small white dots. Ew. There are similar details of his physical space, a, quote, regular human room with a table on which an unpacked line of fabric samples was all spread out. Gregor is a traveling salesman. 
and, quote, over the table, hung the picture he had recently cut out of a glossy magazine and lodged in a pretty gilt frame. It showed a lady done up in a fur hat and a fur boa, sitting upright and raising up against the viewer a heavy fur muff into which her whole forearm had disappeared. Hmm. I'll take repressed sexual desire for a thousand, Dr. Freud. Keep this furry lady in mind as we progress. We will come back to her. So the next thing that happens is actually quite funny. Instead of having a full freakout that he is now a giant, human-sized, cockroach-type bug, Gregor says to himself, What a grueling job I've picked. Day in, day out on the road. The upset of doing business is much worse than the actual business in the home office. And besides, I've got the torture of traveling, worrying about changing trains, eating miserable food at all hours, constantly seeing new faces, no relationships that last or get more intimate. To the devil with it all. Huh. I feel pretty sure that if I woke up as anything other than me, never mind if I woke up as a thing that makes everyone scream and want to stomp me, I would not be like, God, I hate my job. Again, here is a man in the throes of an existential crisis, but it also feels surreal to put turning into a human-sized cockroach second on your list of complaints for the morning. From here, we watch Gregor slowly accept that he really is a bug and he is not having a nightmare. Then we get the family's realization that this has happened. Their reactions reveal a lot about their characters. He is clearly closest to his sister, who whispers compassionately to him from behind one of the several doors to his room. The mom is a mess, all tears and fainting. Dad is a brute, naturally, because how else would Kafka portray the father figure? We find out through Gregor's internal monologues that he has to work so hard at a job that makes him anxious, exhausted, and lonely because he is paying off a debt that his family owed after the collapse of his father's business some years back. Why he has to do this is unclear, but here's a cool takeaway. The word for debt in German is the same as the word for guilt. Hmm, keep that in mind. And here's another idea for you to ponder as we move through this story. If Gregor hates his job and his position in his family so much, if he is overwhelmed by the sense that he can't be his authentic self in his current set of circumstances, then maybe becoming a bug is like an escape. I mean, you can't get on that train and support your family if you can't put on pants, right? Still, Gregor feels deep shame over being unable to get up and go to work. Don't stay in bed being useless, he says to himself. But he literally can't seem to make his new body move off the bed. And no wonder he is chastising himself. His tardiness triggers a home visit from his office manager. Mr. Samsa, says the manager, you barricade yourself in your room, cause your parents serious unnecessary worry, and you neglect your duties to the firm in a really shocking manner. Can you imagine if you missed one day of work and your boss came to your house and yelled at you in front of your parents? Jeez. Gregor is genuinely shocked at the accusation that he doesn't work hard and tries to object, but the family and the manager hear only chirping. His mother starts to cry, and the manager says, that was the voice of an animal. Keeping in mind Kafka's belief that communication is key to our humanity, this surely is a signal that the other people in the story will soon lose sight of Gregor's humanity. For a little while, the family wants to help. Get a locksmith, get a doctor, they say to one another. And Gregor is calmed by this. 
he, quote, felt integrated into human society once again and hoped for marvelous, amazing feats from both the doctor and the locksmith. This burst of hopeful belonging, ridding him of the isolating shame he was feeling before, inspires him to try to unlock the door himself. Unfortunately, he is successful, and this sets off the predictable mayhem of panic and disgust. Try to picture this man-sized cockroach unlocking a door, then scuttling through it like a small brown disgusting car moving around an invisible track. The manager backs out of the apartment and down the building stairs, horror movie style. The mom shrieks and sits down on the breakfast table and lets the coffee urn spill hot brown liquid all over the rug, and that's when dad really loses it. The dad comes at him, quote, with a hostile expression, clenched his fist as if to drive Gregor back into his room. Brandishing a cane in one hand and a newspaper in the other, quote, hissing like a wild man, he forces Gregor back into his room. He shoves him so violently that Gregor is left bleeding profusely. So we end part one with Gregor awash in shame that he can't go to work and that he is a giant, useless, disgusting pain in the ass. I mean a bug. In part two, Gregor begins to make adjustments to lean into his bugginess. His sister is his biggest ally, trying to feed him one food and then another because his tastes have changed. But Gregor hides himself whenever she comes into the room because he sees that he is, quote, repulsive to her. Feeding her brother means dropping food or even just leftover bits of food on the floor and hastily sweeping up and discarding anything he leaves. So she is kind to him, but she doesn't see him as human. In a bit of exposition that comes later in the chapter, we learn how Gregor came to be the only breadwinner of the household. Gregor's, quote, sole concern had been to do everything in his power to make the family forget as quickly as possible the business disaster. And so he began to work with special ardor and had risen almost overnight from stock clerk to traveling salesman. And in no time, his successes on the job were transformed. Hmm, sounds like maybe Gregor had a metamorphosis before his metamorphosis. And this clearly had a detrimental effect on him. We know, of course, that he hates his job, but we also know that he was not always a whining salesman. When his mom accidentally backs into the breakfast table in part one, we see on the wall a, quote, photograph of Gregor from his army days in a lieutenant's uniform, his hand on his sword, a carefree smile on his lips, demanding respect for his bearing and rank. What is never explained is why Gregor is responsible for fixing what the dad did wrong. This plot hole, if you will, adds to the story's surrealist feel. Now that Gregor can't work, the other family members begin to talk about working themselves, and this makes Gregor feel, quote, hot with shame and grief. This even though they all appear to be reasonably able-bodied. Kafka makes a sly point of the family's life of leisure that was led when Gregor was working. Again, no explanation is given for why they can have three-hour breakfasts and loll about the house while he toils away at a grueling job. Gregor never loses his ability to think like a human, but he loses other human qualities, such as taking pleasure in food, and he finds his most genuine happiness in simple things like crawling on the walls and hanging from the ceiling. 
So his sister gets the idea that maybe he'd like it better if they removed all of the furniture from his room. Gregor panics, imagining that they are forgetting his human past altogether and that he will too if they take away his human things. Quote, they were clearing out his room, depriving him of everything he loved. When his sister and his mother leave the room for a moment, Gregor breaks out from his hiding place under the couch and crawls up a wall to protect his treasure, the picture of the lady all done up in furs. He, quote, hurriedly crawled up on it and pressed himself against the glass, which gave a good surface to stick to and soothed his hot belly. Um, hello, Dr. Freud? When mom and Greta return, Mom freaks out at the sight of her six-foot vermin child, and Greta shakes her fist at him, furious. Soon, Dad gets involved, screaming, See, I told you he'd be nothing but trouble. And Gregor panics and leaves the room, crawling all over the apartment and finally landing on his back in the middle of the breakfast table. At some point, the mom faints. Gregor writes himself and begins to scurry away from the pursuing father, who is suddenly a formidable figure in a uniform he wears for his new job as a bank messenger. Something lightly bounces near Gregor, and he sees it is an apple. He turns and realizes his dad has filled his pockets from the fruit bowl on the buffet and was now pitching one apple after another at his son. Most miss, but finally one comes flying fast and, quote, literally forced its way into Gregor's back. This causes startling, unbelievable pain. Meanwhile, his mother comes to, and because Greta has, quote, partly undressed her to help her breathe, when the mom runs up to the father for protection from her foul son, on her way, her unfastened petticoats slide to the floor one by one, and stumbling over her skirts, she forced herself onto his father, embracing him in complete union with him. Uh, but no, it's not a competition or anything, because that's gross, right? Unthinkable that the mom is somehow a pawn between father and son, right? Right. Uh, paging Dr. Freud, we have an Oedipus complex on aisle four. As we begin part three, we learn that a full month has passed, and the apple remains embedded in poor Gregor's back. Everyone is working and everyone is exhausted, but they have learned to live with Gregor, sort of. What they actually do is, quote, swallow their disgust and endure him, endure him and nothing more. They are a little irritated because they can't move to a more affordable apartment because of him. And taking care of him is like the last thing on anyone's list. Well, Greta's list, because she is the only one who ever did care for him. And she does it now hurriedly, badly, and with resentment. So his room becomes dirty and he himself is filthy with bits of fluff and dust stuck all over him. To offset expenses, they take in three boarders. I think these men, who are indistinguishable from one another and who have no traits beyond severity, are meant to represent the prying, judging eyes of society. They are described as three serious gentlemen with long beards who are obsessed with neatness and who could not stand, quote, useless, dirty junk, you know, like a sofa-sized cockroach idling around in an unkempt bedroom. Of course, the family doesn't tell them about Gregor, but one evening, Gregor hears his sister playing music for the boarders and is so drawn to it that he leaves his room. This scene is written with church-like seriousness, but it's actually pretty hilarious. Here are these three men, 
For some reason, I always imagine them in Hamburg hats, even though they are inside, listening to Greta play the violin. Badly, by the way, because they kind of collectively grimace and stop listening and begin talking amongst themselves. So I imagine her screeching away, and then this six-foot-long, brown, nasty varmint just sashays into view. The boarders freak out and announce that they are leaving the next day and they're not paying any rent. This is the final straw for Greta. She starts calling her brother It and conveniently decides that maybe this is not Gregor after all, because why would he be so selfish as to put them out like this? I won't pronounce the name of my brother in front of this monster, and so all I have to say is we have to try to get rid of it. We've done everything humanly possible to take care of it and put up with it. It has to go. After this nice shame sesh with the fam, Gregor slinks back into his room and they shut him in there and lock the door. And now, Gregor says to himself, he soon made the discovery that he could no longer move at all. The rotten apple in his back and the inflamed area around it, which were completely covered in fluffy dust, already hardly bothered him. He thought back on his family with deep emotion and love. His conviction that he would have to disappear was, if possible, even firmer than his sister's. He remained in a state of empty and peaceful reflection until the tower clock struck three in the morning. He saw that outside the window, everything was beginning to grow light. Then, without his consent, his head sank to the floor and from his nostrils streamed his last weak breath. The maid comes the next morning and with all the gentle sympathy of a Soviet gymnastics coach, barks, come and have a look. It's croaked. It's dead as a doornail. Mr. and Mrs. Samsa hear this news from their, quote, marriage bed, and Mrs. Samsa emerges in nothing but her nightgown. It would appear the downfall of Gregor has been hella good for the Samsa's marital relations. So the maid takes care of things. It never says what she does with Gregor's body, but she's pretty pleased with herself, and she tries to tell the family about it, but Mr. Samsa stops her. She leaves, the boarders leave, and Greta and her mom go and stand looking out a window and holding each other. And the dad says, come on now, come over here, stop brooding about the past, and have a little consideration for me, too. The women obeyed him at once, hurried over to him, fondled him. I'm not going to have another patriarchy rant. See episode two from last season on Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. But game, set, match, Mr. Samsa. In the Freudian battle of dad versus son, you have won. So the family decides they will take the day off and ride the trolley out into the country. The train is completely filled with warm sunshine, and they lean back comfortably and begin to discuss the future. They will move apartments to something cheaper and easier to manage than the old one, which, quote, Gregor had picked for them. Then, as Greta is talking, Mr. and Mrs. Samsa notice that she is getting livelier and livelier, and they see that she is actually a good-looking girl. It would be time soon for her to find a husband. And it was like a confirmation of their new dreams and intentions when at the end of the ride, their daughter got up first and stretched her young body. Kind of like a butterfly emerging from its chrysalis. 
kind of like a metamorphosis, no? And that is the end of the story, but not the end of my revelations about the story. You knew it was coming, so don't act surprised. Of course I am going to tell you that the cockroach is Jesus. Put down your torches and your pitchforks and hear me out. So first of all, the big picture stuff. Just as Gatsby dies a sacrificial death so that the, quote, rotten crowd could continue being rotten, Gregor's death allows the family to resume and even improve their lives. His death saves them. They will move apartments, and Mr. and Mrs. Samsa will enjoy watching their remaining child metamorphose into marriageable womanhood, happily ever after. Now for the other clues. Let's get back to that apple. I mean, Kafka could have had the dad throw literally anything at Gregor, but he chose apples. What do apples represent? Let's all say it together, people. The forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, naturally. When the first man and the first woman eat this fruit, they commit the so-called original sin. Humanity falls from grace and can only be redeemed by the perfect sacrifice of God's Son on the cross, who, as the song says, takes away the sins of the world. So when Gregor dies with that apple in his back, he literally takes on his family's sins or troubles and dies with them, allowing them to carry on, resurrected, and brought back to life. And P.S., also not an accident that Gregor dies as a clock strikes three, just as Jesus did. So take that or leave it. My final thought is that I believe this story is an allegory for the plight of the tortured artist. We know that Kafka hated his workaday life and desperately desired to be a writer, but he was conflicted about his abilities, even asking a friend to burn all of his work when he knew he was dying of tuberculosis. Perhaps by turning into a bug, Gregor is, tragically, expressing how he thinks his family would see him if he were to quit his job and pursue his passions. Kafka's insecurities as a writer, paired with living under the tyranny of his dad, likely fueled a lot of self-hatred. No one articulates writer's block quite so painfully as Kafka. Just listen to some of his journal entries when writer's block would hit. The end of writing. When will it take me up again? Nine days later. Again, tried to write. Virtually useless. The next day. The old incapacity. A week later. Complete standstill, unending torments. More than a month later, I have achieved nothing. Two weeks later, lack of appetite, fear of getting back late in the evening, but above all the thought that I wrote nothing yesterday, that I keep getting farther and farther from it and am in danger of losing everything I have laboriously achieved these past six months. Provided proof of this by writing one and a half wretched pages of a new story that I've already decided to discard. Occasionally, I feel an unhappiness that almost dismembers me and at the same time am convinced of its necessity and of the existence of a goal to which one makes one's way by undergoing every kind of unhappiness. And finally, incapable of living with people, of speaking, complete immersion in myself, thinking of myself, apathetic, witless, fearful. I have nothing to say to anyone, never. Perhaps the metamorphosis is a cry for help from the wilderness of a lonely writer's life, 
And so Kafka's strange little wonder of a story got me thinking, why do I write? I have moved at least a dozen times in my adult life, and to every new dwelling I bring a marbled composition notebook from Mrs. Henry's fourth grade English class. Inside are awful stories and worse poems about the moon, about a snowstorm, and about Washington Square Park, where I grew up. I also have my first diary from around the same time, called the Gnome Notebook. It is a denim blue and features a little stocking-hatted, bearded character on the cover. Inside are many, many exclamation points, and in large, loopy lettering, the highs and lows of new friends, mean teachers, crushes, a birthday or two, and a list of Christmas presents desired and received. My diary writing habit never left me, and the notebooks now form a precarious stack almost as tall as I am. Everything is there, every milestone, every heartthrob and heartbreak, every longing, every dream, every disappointment. A lot of it is forgettable drivel, endless navel-gazing and worrying about nothing that I now cringe to read. Sometimes I am tempted to go ahead and send them all to the dump before I die and one of my kids finds them. Writing is therapy for me, a way to work through problems big and small, and it works, but it is more than that. I think as early as the pages of that gnome notebook, I was imagining pulling my life together into a book, and so I used the journals as a way to keep track, to record it all so that I would have what I needed for this book I fancied I would one day write about myself. It sounds narcissistic, and I guess in a way it is. Meanwhile, I have in fact led a pretty colorful life, full of stories that command attention, that I can trot out at any party. Now I wonder, have I been living a fascinating life so I could write about it? I mean, of course not. But there is this weird Truman Show aspect to my obsessive journaling. It would be different if I woke up at 50 and said, you know, this rich life sure would make for interesting reading. But that's not what happened. I knew all along I would one day write a book, and I have. I promise you, you will be the first to know when it's published. Did someone pay me to write this book? No, they did not. Did someone pay me to begin writing the novel I've been picking at for the last couple of years? Again, no. And then there is this podcast. I've made less than $10 on this thing, and yet I spend hours on my scripts and away from my family. This is a joke of a side hustle. But like a river that will find its flow, I will find outlets for my need to write. Writing is a little like love that way. I write because I can't not write, because my very life depends on it. I get up at 5 a.m., I bleed out my soul, I spend time and even money doing what I love without making a dime. I get it, Kafka, I really do. Luckily, I do not feel at all like a cockroach. If you enjoyed this episode of Cocktail Party Takeaways, please show your love. Rate it, like it, download it, and leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. To stay up to date on future episodes, follow me on Twitter at AnneRochelle67. That's A-N-N-E-R-O-C-H-E-L-L 67. My website, AnneRochelle.com, is where you can go for more information about me or about the podcast. That's Anne with an E, Rochelle without. Cocktail Party Takeaways is recorded and produced by David Silverman, with original music by Gus Kenningsmark, cover art by Stuart Key. Cheers, and let's all read more. <laughs>